the challenging thing with work comp, when we talk about course and scope, remote work, you know, while you're driving all of these, they're, they're all connected to the fact that the policies that were in place when work comp was originally designed in this country were people who were going to a building and leaving that building. And that was it, right? Work now has expanded so much more. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. Today, I'm joined by my partner and co-host, Wendy Smith. How are you, Wendy? Hi, Megan. Hi, everyone. (laughs) So we are back to uh, continue our comp series. If you all were listening, as I'm sure you were, a few months ago, we released like a hot topics on comp. And today we are kind of going, diving a little further on those hot topics and just talking about like the challenges that those those topics will face. Uh, So of course I had to have Wendy come on because she is our our comp expert at Morgan and Akins. But this week we also brought on Alicia De Palma, who is a vice president and claims consultant at Locked In Companies. Um, And Wendy goes way back with her. So I'm so excited to have her on. Um, And with that, let's bring her in. Hey, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us on Defense Never Rest today. How are you this afternoon? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to uh, dive into some of these tough challenges we're seeing in work comp. Yes. So I am so happy to have you on. Wendy and I have been like throwing around this topic for a while. Um, I don't know if you had tuned in, but a few months ago we had done uh, a podcast about hot topics and comp. Um, And this is kind of a a follow-up to that is, you know, rising to the challenges of the, the these hot topics and the challenges they face us. So like what, almost like a, what would you do type discussion? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the hot topics we had talked about a few months ago was medical marijuana. You know, it, it's legal now. And I don't know how many States went you might know it's a lot. <laughs> well, medical marijuana or recreational. Oh, that's different. true. Very yeah. different. Very different. Yep. Yep. Although but, it's starting to turn not very different, but (laughs) yes, but with the medical marijuana, you know, situation and now that it's legal, you know, how are you dealing with the the challenges of employees using medical marijuana? Yeah. So I think when we think about marijuana and I know Wendy pointed out, obviously medical versus recreational and the fact that the lines are starting to blur and, you know, living in Jersey, obviously recreational marijuana was just passed on our ballot last November. And I think probably two months after that happened, my employer in PA was emailing me going, we don't know what to do. How do we address this? We need a policy, blah, 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 blah. And I think that's the big thing right now, right? Is whether it's medical or recreational, it's having a policy in place, knowing what are the laws of the states, not only that you operate in, but the laws that your employees live in, right? So in this area, Delaware, PA, New Jersey, we're drawing people from different jurisdictions who aren't thinking about, well, it's not legal in PA for me to do this, but it's legal for me to do it in Jersey. They're just going, all right, well, we passed this in New Jersey. That's great. I'm, I'm going to go, you know, light up on a Friday night or uh, a Monday morning or whatever you're doing it. And you know, it's kind of on the employer to be the one that actually thinks about that. And so knowing what the laws are in the states where your employees are coming from, as well as where you are, but then putting a consistent policy in place. So, you know, we talk about work comp, but for marijuana, what I think is so interesting is when we talk to employers, a lot of the questions we're getting are more on the employment practices and risk 
safety side, right? And it really does kind of flow nicely into work comp because most employees are thinking of comp as an extension of their benefits. So it's all intertwined in that same way, right? So you need to have clear policies in place. You need to have consistent policies in place and you need to be training people on those policies, right? So when employees come in the door, most of the time they get a handbook and they say, review this, or they get an onboarding you know, orientation and then they have to acknowledge something after the fact. We are changing your policies because you now have marijuana to contemplate being a factor in the workplace. How are you educating people on that change? And are you having them acknowledge the fact that they understand it? Because if, if you're not doing that, it doesn't matter what you put in writing. If I have a, an employee that, that comes across and says, you know, I slipped and fell and the employer has a suspicion, maybe a, a coworker or a supervisor said something to them like, oh yeah, I know, you know, Johnny was behind the dumpster last night, you know, smoking and, and he came into work for his next shift and suddenly gets hurt. If Johnny didn't know you had a policy on that and he lives somewhere where it's legal, he's going to expect that that's a, a claim that you should respond to and that your carrier should respond to. So I think the, the onus still falls to the employer to do that education piece. Right. Um, so I, you know, I, in terms of the actual comp response, I still think that the expectation from employees is going to be there that if they are through the use of a medical card allowed to have this, it's not to say that they should be allowed to have it in the workplace. I think most States typically are saying, you know, use while you're in the workplace is not a reasonable accommodation, right? Like, I don't care if you have a medical card or not, there's federal laws around that. Um, but in terms of outside of work use, whether it's medical or recreational, the employee doesn't understand and they get hurt. They're going to file a claim. And I think you're going to be hard pressed to find the ability to do a thorough enough investigation to combat that. Um, you're going to see adjusters leaning a lot more on, you know, if you can't necessarily do testing after the fact, they're going to be leaning more on what did other people around them see, right? Did we have a coworker witness something? Could they maybe testify to the fact that they think they could have been impaired? Do you have surveillance? Um, is there a supervisor that knows, you know, this is someone who typically is, is partaking in this and, and we should probably be monitoring them a little bit closer on the job. And how does that impact not only our productivity at work, but are we opening ourselves up to liability on the employer side? So there's always that balance right. between the work comp and the, and the EPL with this. And that's always, I, I get that's a very specific challenge I've, I've written about, I've posted about, because you see this whole thing, like, you know, it goes from the beginning where, you know, I've had questions about how do you ensure workers' comp policies for employers who tell you, we know that we have employees that have medical marijuana cards. Mm -hmm. Then you have the issue about the testing, what comes out. Well, you look at the case that came out in New Jersey that went up to the Supreme Court was on the employment side, but it was an injured worker, tells the hospital that he will test positive for marijuana because he has a medical card. He's a covering cancer patient and they don't test him. They, they never even did testing. So you don't even have anything to base that back if that was even to be a defense later on down the road. You know, people will say, I already have a card. I already gonna test, I'm already gonna test positive. So you might not even have a, a medical facility. You can't control that to, to test them. 
So you have open holes on that. That's a, that's another challenge that I've seen. The cross jurisdiction is always has definitely been a challenge. People that are coming from other states working in the state of Pennsylvania, vice versa, because I do Jersey and New York, you see that come about. And Jersey and New York seem to be following similar type law patterns in their cases, whereas I'm seeing it, Pennsylvania is different. Pennsylvania actually has a bill that's uh, being that's being presented, it's not passed, about allowing employers to look at the types of jobs that they have for their employees, people that are in manufacturing, you know, is it an inherent risk to have people even using medical marijuana cards, you know, that have medical marijuana cards using this type of equipment? And, and what what kind of, you know, protections for the employers out there? So it'd be interesting to see down the pike, you know, what legislation does with this, if they will even, you know, gets passed or gets a second look at. Yeah, I and think that that's... Oh, oh, sorry, Megan. I was going to say, that's what I was going to follow up on. Is it, you know, does it make a difference as to the type of industry you're in versus like what kind of policies you have? You know, like if you, again, if you're working with machinery, uh, you, you know, it, it is a, a inherent risk to your employee to be under the influence of anything and operate that heavy, heavy machinery versus if you just have a desk job, okay, taking a part away that, that, you know, you might be your brain may be like not working a hundred percent, but like it has, it doesn't have the same risk involved yeah. to your, to your employees, uh, well-being. I think that's where you're going to see as well, you know, on, on the risk and safety side, a little bit more of the leaning towards employer friendly in terms of protections. When we think about risk safety, right? So if you have clients in manufacturing industries, you have clients dealing with hazardous materials, you have clients who, compose a greater risk of harm to the general public if something they do causes either an injury to themselves or to others or something that could um, jeopardize a, a crucial piece of a process. I absolutely think you are going to see courts that are going to be favoring employers a little bit more. But I think that is also still going to tie back to if you are in one of those industries, that is why you need to look now if you don't already have a policy in place to address this. Even if you don't have a state where it is legal right now, this should still be a point of conversation because when it happens, you need to be ready to roll that out, have employees trained up on it and have them acknowledge it to say, hey, you know, we are in, let's just say the manufacturing industry. If you somehow test positive, if we do random drug testing, whatever that looks like, we have a policy that says we can terminate your employment. Like that's it. Now, medical marijuana obviously is a little bit trickier simply because, you know, again, of that reasonable accommodation, I still think that's something that's probably going to be tested, but because marijuana is still illegal at the federal level, like ADA protection is not something that is, is really going to come into play for an employee who says, well, this policy violates my rights mm -hmm. medical marijuana like well show me how that violates it if it's not legal at the federal level ada shouldn't apply to that right well they have their own issues with the law another challenge to this as well that you're dealing with because you talk about again you know i'm talking about like from the time you look at policies how they're written to how the employer has a policy in place as to a case you know you're looking at future risk, you know, from an employment side, from a comp side. Well, now you've got another little piece that I throw in. Okay, but say you don't have a medical marijuana card, you don't have any of this, you get hurt. And then 
let's talk about treatment, medical treatment. Well, you, we've all heard about, we've talked many times about the opioid crisis. Now people are starting to move to the medical marijuana treatment mm-hmm. as an, a pain management option. When you're getting cases that come down, one just came down here in Pennsylvania in comp, you're making carriers pay for that treatment. Mm-hmm. So now you have somebody that's using it, being paid for by comp. So what happens when they now come back? You want to get them back to the workforce. How does that, they don't quite go together necessarily, you know, and it's always, a, you know, that's what we talk about. These are always fact mm-hmm. specific patterns that you look at. And I'm trying, you know, that's the point of why I wanted to talk about these challenges today. Like, what is it that you look for and how to deal with these challenges? And, you know, it starts from that beginning point of policy in place, then taking into yep. account like, okay, well, you were put on medical marijuana for treatment, yet the carrier to pay for it. But again, you, the type of job you work in, we cannot provide a reasonable accommodation for you for the fact that you are working with heavy equipment, maybe right. the, the driving issues, you know, you yep. don't want somebody falling asleep, you know, right. lifting heavy items. Yeah, I think about the driving you mentioned too. Like, think about a lot of our clients that have a fleet management policy in place. So, you might be updating your employee handbook. You should absolutely be updating your fleet management policy as well, especially if you have like sales folks or people who could just be driving through some of those states and say, Well, I visited Colorado. When I visited Colorado, it's legal there for recreational use. I figured, why not? My company doesn't have a policy around that. Right. Um, You know, and, and, the way that this is spreading and, and how available it is, it, again, I know we keep saying it, but in my mind, in order for the employer to have that protection, you have to demonstrate that you were doing everything you could to make sure your employees were aware of what the expectations are. And on the, the medical treatment side, I think one of the things that's actually kind of an interesting opportunity to marijuana use is does that give you some leverage in certain jurisdictions to settle claims that previously maybe someone was going, I don't want to, because if you say, Hey, you know, if you settle your claim, technically we don't have to pay for your medical marijuana treatment, but here's, you know, here's your settlement, what you do with those funds. If it's not, you know, administered in some way, we won't know. Here's some money to go out and treat how you see fit. Um, and I know for me personally, we've had, I've had two clients that have been able to use that um, in different states as a, a mechanism to settle some claims that were kind of just hanging out there for a while. So yeah. it can be a benefit. That's great. Um, and the, the, when you mentioned the, the, the sales, the salesperson's driving made me think about this, this other issue that can come up is just like, what is the course and scope of employment? And if you have, again, like in that situation that say you have a salesperson who's driving through, um, you know, Colorado, they, they buy some, you know, recreational use marijuana, and then they're, they're involved in a, an accident. Um, so now, now you're like, well, they're driving it. They're probably in the course and scope of their employment. Um, but then they deviated, I guess, from, <laughs> from, <laughs> from the employment <laughs> to, to purchase, you know, some legal, you know, weed, <laughs> but I don't think it's much different than, then, you know, having drinks at lunch and then driving, keep getting back in the car and, you know, getting in an accident then. 
Um, but again, I think it comes back to what you're saying. You need to have these policies and procedures in place. So there's no, there's no gray or le- at least less gray. There's always going to be some gray, um, but less of it. I think that part is black and white. I mean, the course of scope of, you know, the deviation, you know, that, that is a challenge. I mean, deviations work. I mean, they had recent case about the whole uh, guy, this traveling uh, employee. Um, that's the other characterized because that's important when you look at course and scope. Had went to a, went home first, then went back to meet a group of people for a uh, happy hour. You know, that somebody was, I think they were leaving to go away. And that went all the way up, uh, you know, the court, the appellate court level. But whether or not they're in the course and scope, and I'm telling you, when you think that you know these parking lot cases, or you know, like, are the coming and going to, I had a client just reach out to me yesterday about a New York claim. These little nuances of where the incident happens, what happens how they're getting to and from work, where they're parking, what they're doing outside of work, mm-hmm. that 100%, you get as many facts as you can. I mean, that's, it is very, that's not policy to be as much as you wanna know the facts upfront, what they were doing, you know, were they deviating from work? Was it a minor deviation, you know, buying drugs, recreational drugs is a different deviation than, making a bathroom stop on the road. Sure. Well, very different. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're combining those two things. (laughs) Which, I mean, depending where you... I don't don't know what these cannabis stores have. They may have wonderful (laughs) facilities. (laughs) Oh, he was getting his medical... He was getting his workers' comp paid medical marijuana, you know, at, at his break while he was, you know, delivering a package for his employer, you know, that could be a fact pattern in, in this day and age, but it is something that is repeatedly coming out differently in, in the courts and how they are. And that's what's making this such a tough challenge out there in comp cases, you know, how you look at these, you know, how do you put a policy in place? You know, do you have to put in writing, this is where you park, this is not where you park. You know, you have you have to go. You have to get to work somehow. But it's traditionally it's never been if you're going to work or you're leaving work, an office. That's not it. You know that depends on whether the claim is compensable. And then you're going to throw in an inevitable where you want to talk about the remote working issue. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to touch on. Touch on next. I mean, that I think the re- remote working um, due to COVID is here to stay. Right. And, and I think it's its own host of challenges um, as to, I mean, Wendy and I have talked about this before in the past. I mean, if you have, if you have all these people working at home and they, you know, like I have all these cords connected to this microphone, if I get off this podcast and I trip over, you know, these, these cords, do I have a comp claim? I mean, (laughs) the, the, the challenging thing with work comp, when we talk about course and scope, remote work, you know, while you're driving all of these, they're, they're all connected to the fact that the policies that were in place when work comp was originally designed in this country were people who were going to a building and leaving that building. And that was it, right? Work now has expanded so much more. 
I'm sure every single person on, on our podcast today has been in a situation where we've been on the phone with an employee as we're walking to our car or to a train or to catch a flight. You know, we're working in the airport, like the office anymore is not at the office. It's everywhere. And so if I'm an employee, I'm going to use the arguments that our claimant attorney friends are going to use, which is, you know, was this furthering my employer's business, right? So happy hours are a great example of that. Like that team goodwill bonding that we're building, right? Everybody's going to be dying to get back together post COVID. And those happy hours are going to extend, you know, beyond the five to seven that we initially scheduled. Now we're going to another place or I'm walking with so-and-so to my car and we just happen to be talking about a client at the time. So to me, it becomes a matter of, as the employer, we always say, do not be the one to make that call. If somebody says to you, I was out with so-and-so the other night and I got hurt, I'm, I'm at least giving a notice only report to my, to my work comp. If somebody says to you, I think I have a work comp claim, absolutely. If it's kind of that gray area of maybe they just mentioned it, then maybe I'm taking into account, is this a state that's going to send some sort of a notice out so that, you know, attorneys are finding out about it and things like that. But give your comp carrier the benefit of doing that investigation as soon as possible so that to Wendy's point, our employees are not the experts. Our employers are not the experts. They don't know what to tell us about what happened with that situation, who they were with, who we need witness statements from, you know, where were they walking? Was it dark? Was it light? Was it like, they don't think about any of that stuff. That's, to me, that's insurance's job and that's our defense counsel's job. So the sooner we can get it into their hands to ask yeah. those questions, the better. Yeah. And I mean, at the same, I mean, for I, I do mostly or all GL work and the same goes for that. I mean, I tell, I, I tell my clients that all the time. I want, if, if you know of a claim and there isn't suit yet, I want to know about it anyway. Cause again, you want to get your feet on the ground and get the information while, while it's fresh. Yep. And before people start forgetting details, <laughs> and I will share. I was going to say, Megan, I will share with you to your core question. Um, I know it's going to depend on the state, but I had a client that was on the hook for a similar claim. So somebody makes a creative argument. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. we all know that usually the the employee is going to win in those situations. <laughs> it just depends on where you are. Um, but to your to your point about like we're working everywhere now. I mean, it's so so true. Like as we, you know, expanded, I think our minds as to what, where you can work and where you can get things done it productivity is different for everybody in different places. You know, it really expand, expands the office reach so, so far. And it's going to be very hard for employers to control the situations. You know, you can control an actual office building to the best of your ability to make it safe for your, your workers. But if everyone is, you know, this morning I had to bring my daughter to swim practice. I brought my laptop. I was working there. There was another woman there. She had her extension cord hanging to the top of the pavilion, you know, and, you know, but, you know, the, the, uh, the risk is, is large when your employees can literally work anywhere and your employer cannot control every environment. Yeah. yeah. And like I, you know, I always say from the legal perspective, but one of the things that I started doing because the laws, you know, we start talking about hot topics, challenges, things that have come up you know, post COVID, everything's changed so much. And there's so much gray area, you know, we talk about it's fact specific, fact specific, I cannot talk today. And, but other things I'm looking at are publications that come out from like, they're the bar associations, 
on these subjects because you start now thinking about how not only the court might think, but how other attorneys think on both sides, yet ideas. And that starts helping you navigate the unknown, you know, like what is it about working from home? You know the case law that sits out there, but now you're in a different situation post-COVID. You know, people are doing a hybrid, go into the office and they're working from home. There's mm -hmm. not a mandate that you work from home anymore. It's something that you have the option to do. So if that's your option, now you get hurt at work how is that going to be treated? You know, those challenges that you think about, you want to know kind of, even though you're going to want the fact pattern when a specific claim comes up, kind of want to know when you're getting asked these questions by clients, how, what the take is on that. Like, wh where do you think that, that, how are people viewing these kinds of issues? You yeah. know, such as working yeah. at home and compensability or not compensability. Yeah, well, and how far do you want the reach of the employer to actually extend, right? right? Like we talk about the policies for marijuana use. Do you want to have defined policies for every single thing? Because the more you try to engineer that remote workspace or mm -hmm. regulating the hours and things like that, it almost takes away certain defenses that you might have if someone gets hurt, right? Like if you were the one that was sending out this is how your workstation needs to be set up, this, 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 and this, and that person's complying and still gets hurt. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but if I'm a judge, I'm gonna take a look at that and go, well, this person followed everything you right. told them to do, employer X, and they still got hurt, they're entitled to benefit. So it's a fine line. Um, yeah. I know one of the things you know, on, on the broker side that we've had conversations with our clients about is approaching some of this from a holistic wellness perspective. So when we talk about, um, proper ergonomic setups, which I, mine is probably not. And, you know, I will openly admit that, but, um, you know, sending communications out to your employees that say, we care about you and your well-being, whether you're working or using this for personal time, we want you to have resources available to understand how to do a proper work from home setup. Um, and carriers are recognizing that this is an issue as well. And some of them have actually started to incorporate uh, video uh, site surveys into their risk service offerings for employers. So it almost takes it back out of the employer's hands and says, you know, so-and-so employee, you've mentioned you've, you've started to have some issues. So we're going to have, you know, CNA or Hartford or Travelers or one of these folks contact you and do a, a virtual site assessment of what your workstation looks like. And then it kind of insulates the employer a, a little bit more from being directly involved in some of that conversation. Yeah. That's a really good point. I like that. Um, and how so, do you regulate? I just, I just question because, like, you know, you're like that holistic point is is really interesting. You know, about these virtual site inspections that you have. You know, if you're working from home and you know you're you're doing this stuff, I think people nowadays that are you know now that things have opened back up, traveling. You know, like how like. Are you letting people like they're not even working from home? They might be working from their vacation home. They might be working mm -hmm. all over the place. You know, again, it's only a finite thing that you can only control. Like, all right, we're going to do a site inspection at your home. We can't do it at your vacation home or if you decide to visit grandma in Florida or whatever. You know, there's caps to all of this. But um, I think that's a really interesting approach. Now, while we're talking about 
like workplaces, people are also now returning to their workplaces uh, in person. And, you know, what sort of like with that comes, you know, are, are people vaccinated or not? And I mean, can employers put policies into place requiring if employees, if they're coming into the office to be vaccinated? Like that's a whole, I mean, that's an issue. I think that's like, <laughs> I know. Did, didn't you read the federal case that came down <laughs> in Texas with the hospital? I mean, that's, that was, a, that was an interesting case, you know, I mean, you had all these employees asking a lot, you know, they were mandating vaccinations to come, you know, to come back to work in a, in a hospital setting. You know, I'm not here to say what the decision is right or wrong or, you know, that kind of thing, but you're starting to follow some of these, you know, people have these guidelines. You're looking at like what OSHA, the EEOC, like all these other entities are putting out as rules. But if you actually read them, this is what I tell people, if you actually read them, they're very open-ended because it's like, okay, you take a look at like, and now we're going to get into a little bit of employment stuff that we're talking about, like ADA accommodations, what you can and can't ask, that kind of stuff. Is it, you know, people love to throw out the HIPAA violation, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But on the same token, they say when you, when the rules just got revised back at the end of May, you start looking at, well, there's a loophole here. Because it's like, okay, you're going to put, employers going to put out a policy that's going to say, you know, obviously, you know, maybe they'll put an incentive to get their employees back to the actual physical workplace and they're going to make an incentive. You can incentivize your employees to get vaccinated. Yeah. Okay. But you can't, they're not making them. It's just an incentive. It's an incentive. They're just incentivizing these guys to come back. But why am I having, I hope this is in the podcast. (laughs) But you come back and you're like, okay, well, I maybe just don't, I don't want to. It's not a religious reason or whatever. And if you read the rules, it is a case by case. They leave it open for a case by case basis. Like you talk to the individual employee and that language is, is sit there and people are like, oh, I, I didn't realize that. And I'm like, yeah, you have to, there's more to it than just ADA parts to that. You know, it's, it's, it's really a, something that each individual employer will look at uh, right. as to whether or not they can, it's, and it's more than just the case law that's coming out too. Well, what about though contracting COVID in the workplace and, you know, being able to, you know, f- file a comp claim related to that? I mean, cause you can't, but then is that just saying, oh, I got a cold, you know, not a, just a cold, but I mean, people get sick at work all the time. You catch things from your colleagues all the time, but with COVID, I feel like it's a shifted now it's different. So, I mean, you wouldn't, I, I would be shocked to find someone filing a comp claim that they got the common cold or the flu from, you know, Joe down the hall. But I think with COVID it's going to happen. It has yeah. Happened. I mean, yeah, I was going to say it, it's happened. Yeah. We're paying on it. Um, mm-hmm. Thankfully, I think, you know, the last statistic I saw, I want to say was of like, the 90% of claims that were filed, like 60% of them, you know, were just a medical payment or something. Did I send that to you? I can't remember (laughs) who was you or if this was a TPA meeting, but I I just remember when I saw this thinking, wow, this actually wasn't as bad. I think it was like 1% of, of all of the certain type of claim was making up you know, the majority of the cost. The other 99% was just basically a medical test and, and stay home. But I think what's interesting about both of these, both returning to the workplace and, and the exposure, 
and the vaccination piece. And the way I always think about it is the greater risk, right? So if you are in a, an industry that could pose a greater risk of exposure to the public, whether it's healthcare, um, senior housing, I know we get a lot of calls about that. You're, you're just out with the general public more, retail, restaurants, whatever that looks like. You know, do you have a greater responsibility as an employer to mandate that your, your folks are vaccinated? And in those situations, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you put that policy in place, you're not gonna still open yourself up to an employment practices claim. We all know that people file claims all the time with the EEOC alleging things regardless of policies that we had in place. So it's not gonna stop those wrongful termination claims. But if you have someone returning to the workplace and saying, you know, I contracted COVID here, I think the same thing applies, right? Did you have the greater risk because you were back at work? And a lot of employers are taking the position of allowing folks back into the office but not necessarily mandating when, right? So you, we'd like to see you in one to two days a week. When you do that is up to you, right? Is that the best approach? I don't know, you know, because how do I know if the day I'm coming in is when 50 other people are going to be in the office or three? Um, so it, it, it's definitely a unique challenge, but I think from a work comp perspective, the way that the carriers and the industry is going to look at it is, did you really have a greater exposure because you were there? Because you probably went out to dinner last night and you were around more people. You, um, you know, you were out at the food store this weekend, or are you somebody who has not left your house since last March? This is the first time you left your house. And the only chance of exposure you would have had because you live by yourself is being at work. Depending on the state. Yeah, we might be picking up for that. Um, yeah. Some of these executive orders and statutes that are in place still have not expired. So it's still out there and, and we still have to keep that in mind when we're looking at claims being adjusted. Yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of time, you know, Alicia, you and I and um, your colleagues, we did a whole presentation about, you know, COVID and the update status and stuff. What mm -hmm. I'm more, what I'm very curious about to see what comes down and, you know, talk about the rebuttable, the rebuttable presumption in some states versus the ones that don't. But I'm curious, what I'm seeing is a challenge that could come up with is, okay, you come back to work, people, you're dealing with public who may, you see signs all the time right now, they don't have to wear masks, you know? Yep. It's, it's optional if you wanna wear a mask now. So are you gonna use that as a, you know, I have a greater exposure because I now, you know, I'm in a retail setting. I, I don't wear, people aren't wearing masks. I might have to wear a mask, but I've got now, you know, 20 customers in line that are not wearing masks. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's something that's going to be, you know, from an, like, you know, when you look about the exposure part to it, is that put, is that going to be a bigger challenge now saying, you know, hey, you didn't, you know, maybe you got COVID at work, maybe you didn't. And the other thing that I was thinking about from, this is because I do employment law and I do comp, I'm thinking like, all right, well, you talk about whether or not you can ask people if they're vaccinated or not. And I get it that if you have, for safety reasons, you can ask, but you can't ask, if they say no, you can't ask why. Okay. Mm -hmm. Somebody that it's a compensable comp claim. Could be anything. Could be I slipped and fell, I could do, I could do whatever. You know, now you have access to a lot of medical records or whatever. 
you find out somebody lied, they weren't vaccinated, or you, you get these kinds of records. You know, is that going to be something that you're going to factor in on how you handle, you know, claims going forward? Um, there's just things that come up in my brain, you know, like challenges that you're gonna that that could be looked at now that the world is shifting and is being opened. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, like when we talk about the, the mask issue, because it's still there, right? Mm-hmm. Places you go, some places are saying if you're not vaccinated, you're required to wear a mask. Well, who's enforcing that? Like, how are we going to ask our employees just the same thing we were doing when this all first started and people had to be wearing masks regardless? How am I going to ask my employee that's making minimum wage to ask someone to leave a store because they're not wearing a mask? Like, they're not going to do that. And I, as an employer, probably cannot reasonably expect them to do that. Um, So I I just, I think that's another interesting aspect of it as we kind of go into this hybrid and, you know, heaven forbid this starts to see a resurgence of some sort of variant, you know, like how does all of this shift and change again? Are we going to start telling people, well, regardless of your vaccination, this variant's out there, now you got to wear these again. Yeah. And I I think everyone already threw them in the trash. (laughs) (laughs) Not if you paid money for those Uh, those cute designer ones. I know. (laughs) Those Athleta ones are are nice and very, I mean, I think that's a really good point that you often don't think about because I think it just as a society, I think everyone is very anxious just to to finally walk in the store and be be free of masks. But you don't often think about the employees in the store and how how they may may feel. And most stores now they are they're all still be still masks, which I think is good for their personal safety. And I like that the their employers are enforcing that. But again, that's only half the equation, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it, it's an interesting point, but that, you know, they're just being put in that situation that they could be inherently at risk. Yep. Um, and I think it's hard for that particular thing. Like, you know, we go back to like, again, what policies do you have in place? Policies are having to change again, because again, you know, people aren't wearing masks, they're not wearing masks. And then, you know, asking people whether or not they're vaccinated, I'm like, are you checking those cards really if they're doing it? And then you find out down the line, oh, I'm reading, you know, this person is out of work and, oh, I'm reading in their file. Hey, they never even got vaccinated. They don't have that. You know, now what do you do with that, that information to go back and say, hey, I, you lied about this. I, I got to terminate you guys. You know, right. that's, those are factors that like people haven't accounted for. And I don't know how you can account for because again, everything changes so fast. Well, right. And again, I think I just keep going back to how COVID is being treated so differently than other things. I mean, it, you never went around and asked everyone if they got their flu vaccine, you know, it, like it, it would be encouraged. Sure. And, and employers would have flu clinics or offer free shots or whatever it may be, but you, you never require, I've never heard of a company saying you must have your, you know, your flu vaccine. I've had daycares say my kids had to have it, but like, I've never had, <laughs> never heard of an employer. And suddenly now there's this, this kind of shift where, you know, now COVID it's different. Yeah. And well, then, and I, I was gonna say, I think industries too, where we are asking our employees or requiring them to be vaccinated because they, they work in those, it poses a greater risk. What happens if they can track something because they got the vaccine, right? Like it's, it's not very common. Yeah. But all those Johnson and Johnson issues, right? Like, what if you were in that population and you had an issue? Do we have to pick that up? Is that a compensable claim? Are we treating someone's blood clot issues? I mean, 
it's something to think about. And definitely, I know for a fact, a couple of my employers have asked that specific question. And unfortunately, the answer we have to tell them is, again, it just, it depends. Right. Well, that's, mm-hmm. that's the answer to everything. Is it depends. Yep. <laughs> but that's such a good point though, too, because those are, I, I expect that will definitely would be claims that would come up, whether or not they're compensable or not is another story, but a, a very high potential claim. If you're an employer, it's like, you must have this. And then mm-hmm. they have some unfortunate after effect. I have no doubt in my mind that wouldn't be a claim. I'm not, yeah. If I'm the employer, I'm going, I don't, I don't want to burn my vacation time now for the time I have to stay home and whatever else. This is common. Right. Well, we have some cases coming down the line on in PA about compensability and stuff like that to be very, it's actually there. There were two at the lower level. Now they're not on the, they're at the appellate. So it'll be interesting to see the way the courts decide, because hopefully that gives some guidelines Obviously, Alicia, I will give you the update when I get that because yeah, I love doing that. But it's just some interesting things like I'm watching about, you know, what's going to set precedent about trying to fix these loopholes here. Um, so like when you get these tough challenges, this is how we look at it. You know, this these are guides beyond just court cases. I'm reading publications from like, you know, the ABA, the local bar associations. It's been a lot of time doing some reading before I start my day. What I I wanted to touch on one one last topic before we run out of time, though, is you know is medical treatment because again, everything's so COVID tied. But with you know with COVID, there's been such a a rise of telemedicine treatment, and you know the impact that I mean, I don't think telemedicine can be compared to you know in person, like seeing a doctor in person. But you know these times have pushed this into this realm that we're doing a lot more telemedicine visits, but how does it impact, you know, your claimants, like when they're making a claim and they, they're they're not having a full evaluation from a doctor, it's all these televisits. I think it depends on what it's for. Um, It's interesting because we've been having this conversation, you know, during COVID and now since COVID with carriers and TPAs around using telemedicine as an avenue to move treatment forward for folks maybe who are traveling a little bit more, um, like telept. I personally am a huge fan of that because there are people who could not consistently go for their physical therapy treatments. And as long as it's the type of things where they can use equipment at home, they don't need to have, um, machinery there next to them. And the, the connection is good enough that they really can be supervised the way they should to do the exercises. They might have an initial in-office visit to make sure they understand it, but then they're doing the follow-up, you know, on video. I'm a huge fan of that because I think it helps with the, the compliance and the recovery, but there's other things where, you know, it could present a challenge from a litigation stance if we're sending someone for a telehealth visit. So, um, you know, we had asked the question at a claim review recently around the use of telehealth for independent medical exams. And the feedback generally was, I don't think we would want to do that because if a doctor isn't seeing them in person, having that physical connection, I I don't think a judge is going to want to go for that. And I don't disagree with them. And I think we're going to see the same thing potentially with treating physicians. If they can make the argument, well, I said he was good to go back to work, but I didn't actually see him. So, 
you know, even though he was on video, I couldn't get a real sense of how he was moving around, how he came into the room, how this, how that. I don't know that I could necessarily stand by that opinion. I mean, from a deposition perspective, Wendy, certainly this is your arena, but that would make me nervous um, if, yeah. I'm, if I'm dealing with that. But, and, and quite honestly, financially, the impact of telemedicine versus an in-person visit isn't really the cost savings that you would think. Really? Dollar for dollar, for the same. The same. Yes. They are still charging for the same modalities over and yep. over again. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, from a litigation, actually, I'll put it this way. It's from who's, it's who's giving the treatment, whether it's beneficial or not. Like, yes, there's a benefit when I need to move the claim. You need to get the, now they're getting the care that they need and you can start watching that. Then you take it like from an I, from an IME. No, if you can get the person in person, because here's the first question that comes out of the, out of the claimant's counsel's mouth when they're cross-examining. You saw the person one time. Yes. You know, you're not the treating, you're not the treating doctor. No, because that would be problematic if they were the treating doctor. Okay. We're going down the side. You never saw the person, you know, cause they always ask the question, like, do you even remember who that person is? How many doctors are going to say, yes, I remember so-and-so unless there's something very specific about them, you know, they did see them one time. So putting that even further remotely out that you only saw them via telehealth, I mean, that's for an IME, that's problematic to me from if you're using that from a litigate to, you know, because you know the case is going to go into litigation. They're not getting better. You're, you need to push that envelope. But from a treatment standpoint, it can go both ways. Sometimes it's beneficial. Sometimes, again, from a cost perspective, I'm reading those HICFAs. I went through a bunch of bills a couple couple days ago for an hour comparing things because people said they weren't getting paid. And I'm like, it's the same price same. whether they're doing it. But I will say this, just a tip, when you look at these claims, if you're doing another claim review and you start seeing somebody racking up those bills, look to see if they are doing it telemedicine. How is a doctor charging for all those modalities when that person's sitting at home on their, you know, doing their exercises and I'm going to use air quotes. You don't know that that's fraud. Yeah. And I would challenge those bills any given day. Yeah. I mean, and that's a, I mean, that's, a, I think that's a whole other issue that maybe mm. the, the increase of, of, you know, fraudulent billing you're going to see. I do it for, I tell you, I've had a couple of cases in New York because um, they can bill back for travel. The claimant, there's a form you can fill back and, and ask, the carrier to pay for travel. And the first thing I looked at, I'm like, because you're thinking this is, this is, and especially at the height of the pandemic when everything was shut down in New York, I'm like going through it. I'm like, there's no way they went. There's no, there's no way called doctor's office. They did not go. So don't tell me you traveled all this. Like I cut that like in more than half of that for that reason. Yeah. Cause you do want, you do watch that where you're getting charged for yeah. When I, th I think from an employee perspective too, um, if you are the type of injured worker that wants to be physically in the presence of a doctor and somebody says to you, well, we can't get you in to see a year actual doctor for another six weeks, but we can do a telehealth visit with someone else a week from now. I mean, do they have the right to say no, right? I'd rather wait for the guy I can see in person. I mm -hmm. think it's an interesting question because, you know, yes, it's, moving them along, their job is to get better and return to work. But at the same time, if they're not comfortable with the telemedicine, I don't know that we can necessarily enforce that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think know. that would be hard. 
Yeah. Well, because in reality, they're choosing that. I, I, I think to see a, a doctor in person is probably always the the better, you know, the higher, the better, higher standard. I mean, let's think about it. If think about it, like the whole reason telehealth even came into play was it to serve remote locations that didn't have direct access to doctors. I mean, that's why like the root of it and now mm-hmm. it's expanded. And I think there's some good of it, but I mean, when you have the option to see someone one-on-one, I think that always is the, the gold standard. Yeah. So we are just about out of time. So Alicia, thank you so much for joining us this morning or this afternoon. I don't even know what time it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm sure we could talk for, for a much, much longer on, on these topics, but we only have an hour. So we'll have to limit it to that. And well, I Megan love and Wendy, talking comp you. with you. So you know that. Always, always. <laughs> Next time we should do it with drinks in the picture. Absolutely. <laughs> that is a wonderful idea. An evening <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for, for all our viewers and listeners, as always, if you like what you hear and what you see, please like and subscribe. We are on um, Apple Podcasts as well as YouTube at The Legal Navigator. 